All righty, good morning. How are y'all? You sure? Good deal. So far, nobody has mentioned the covering of the dragons yet, but we know the past couple of weeks that has been pretty much the sole attention and focus, all right? I had somebody come up to me at the end of last week and actually counted how many scales were on the dragon's skin. All right, so for those of you who don't know what we're talking about, that's why you should come to church every week, all right? You miss giant blue dragons that are six feet. At some point, we'll use them as a sermon analogy, though. We'll pull those curtains down, though, all right? All right, good deal. Um, Anyway, uh, good to be here with you all this morning. Um, James is about to get extremely intense this week, all right? And so um, this is, uh, yeah, just a very impactful message. I feel like James is very aggressive, um, even in his words and his thoughts. And so my prayer is that the Lord would allow us to feel that this week a little bit, that we would uh, probably, like James' original readers, be kind of convicted and challenged at what James is actually trying to communicate to us, all right? And so if you have your Bibles, go ahead and grab them. We'll be in James chapter 1. Uh, we are going to be there for the whole day, uh, so you can camp out there. If you don't have a Bible, there should be some under every second and third chair somewhere around you. Uh, if you don't own a Bible, we want you to take that Bible and to keep that. That's our gift to you. Um, we want you to have the Word and to uh, uh, be able to read it throughout the week, and so please keep that. You can also follow along on your smartphone if you wish. Uh, if you have the Version app, underneath the tab section, if you click on Live, type in the Well Austin, you'll be able to follow along in that way. Uh, there's notes. Uh, all the Scripture will be up there for today. Uh, Poll questions, prayer requests, everything. Um, If you don't have that, but you still want to follow along on your smartphone, you can take this link, put it right into your web browser, and you'll be able to follow along that way. So whatever your method is, we want you to be able to uh, see that we're actually trying to stay under the authority of God. We want you to see the word, all right? And so please uh, have something where you're able to see exactly what God is trying to say to us, all right? So let's go ahead and dive right in. James chapter 1, we're going to pick it up in verse 19. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. Okay, now there's a ton to unpack here, all right? First of all, James tells us to know, all right? That starts off with know this, he says. So two weeks ago, what we looked at is that James was telling us to have an intellectual knowledge that suffering produces our newness or our sanctification, right? And so James said, you need to know this because it doesn't feel like suffering is for your good, but James told us you need to consider or think about or know that suffering is for your good, all right? James gives us a similar thing here. He says, know this, think about this. The Greek word is oida, okay, which is a a head knowledge versus a, a heart knowledge. So he says, hey, I want you to know this, think about what I'm telling you, because what James is about to say is going to go against our natural inclinations and probably our emotions a little bit. And so James says, hey, think about what I'm saying for a minute. Let this dwell in your head. Realize, think about this logically. He says, know this, okay? Then he calls them beloved brothers, right? My beloved brothers. Uh, James actually uses this term brothers 15 times throughout the book of James. So there's only five chapters. So he uses this on average three times per chapter. In fact, every time he starts off with a new thought, he actually calls them brothers. And so this is a, a neutral term. It could mean brothers or sisters in the Greek. And so what he's saying is family, right? By brothers and my sisters. And he's trying to create a little bit of a family bond. James is reminding them that he loves them. All right. And why? Why is James reminding them that he loves them? Because James is saying extremely hard things. 
And so he kind of wants them to remember, hey, I love you. Uh, I'm about to say something hard, but I want you to remember that you're my beloved brothers. You're my beloved sisters, James says. So did your parents ever say something like that? Like, this is hurting you as much as it's hurting me as they're spanking you, right? Or you know that I love you as they begin to whoop you with the belt, right? It's like, it doesn't feel like love, but now that you're older, you're like, yeah, I guess they did love me in that way, okay? Um, And so this is what James is doing. He truly loves them, all right? Uh, Except once, James does freak out and calls them uh, wicked, murderous, adulterous people. But that's not until James chapter four, so he takes his own advice. He's slow to anger, okay? Um, But we won't get there for a few weeks. But um, I just wanna let you know that personally, I've been spanked by these verses this week. All right. These have really, really hit me pretty hard. Uh, And you may feel like the text is going to be spanking you a little bit. Know that James is doing this in love. Okay. If this is truly inspired by the Holy Spirit, if God is truly breathing this word out, then he wants our holiness. He wants our affections. He wants us to be whole, to be filled with joy. All right. And so uh, you are beloved brothers and sisters. If you have uh, drawn toward Christ, you are beloved. And so you need to remember that before we even get in, all right? So you ready? All right, here comes the spanking, okay? Wasn't that the worst part of the spanking? The anticipation? You know, you're like standing there like, ah, maybe, some of y'all must not have got spanked, all right? Y'all must have grew up in different types of households. Anyway, um, so James says, be quick to hear, uh, slow to speak, and slow to anger, all right? How often is it where we are the exact opposite of what James is telling us to do? We're slow to hear, we're quick to speak, and we're very, very quick to our anger, right? James says you got to do the exact opposite here. So do you listen when you're listening to people? Are you listening for ammunition so you can just fire back at them? Or are you actually trying to take time to understand what they're saying, particularly if you disagree with them? When you disagree, are you simply looking to try to poke holes in what they're saying, to shoot back at what they're saying, or are you actually taking time to listen to what they're saying? When your wife tries to call you out on something, hey, babe, can you listen? Do you in your head or maybe even out loud say, no, you listen to me, right? Or do you take the time to listen? Like if she came to you right now, all right, for those married folks, just think, if your wife right now kind of leaned over and whispered, hey, after church, I really want to talk about something I feel like you could, you could do a lot better, all right? Would you listen or would your blood immediately begin to boil and would you get angry and not be ready to receive, right? See, it's hard. It's quick or it's easy to be quick to anger. It's hard to be slow to anger to actually take the time to listen and to be slow to speak. And so James says, hey, look, we need to do this. Or another example, do you always respond out of anger with your boss? Like no matter what your boss says or does, you're always angry, <laughs> Right? You always feel like there's something against you. You always feel like, are you quick to anger on that? Or do you assume that you always have the right and the most pure speech? Right? Like your speech, your opinion is always the correct opinion. Nobody else's opinion is right. Your opinion is the one that's right. Okay? That's being quick to speak. That's being slow to listen. And James says, no, no, you got to do the opposite. You got to be slow to speak, but quick to listen. You got to try to understand what's going on. You got to be slow to anger, right? There was a few weeks ago, um, it was raining after church and um, we were outside and I asked my wife to hold my Bible, okay? And so we're outside and uh, Micaiah, our daughter's running around and I'm walking over to her. And at some point she began to try to pass the Bible over to me, but she was literally balancing it with like just her pinky, all right? And as she was passing it to me, it dropped into the rainwater, 
okay? For those of you who don't know me, that must not be, it dropped in the water, right? And so she literally said, that was the worst thing I could do for our marriage. And she just like walked inside. And only because some of y'all were around did I not get angry, all right? But like, it's really easy in situations like that just to be quick to anger, right? And that's something silly. It's just a Bible. I have other ones. But it's so easy to be filled with anger kind of for no reason. It was a mistake. Now, when I make a mistake, I want grace, right? When I do something wrong, I, I expect, oh, I'm really sorry. And I expect to say, oh, it's okay. Don't worry. It, it's okay. It was a mistake. But when somebody else makes a mistake, I'm immediately quick to judge them, right? And so too are many of us in many different ways. James says, no, be slow to anger, right? Don't be quick tempered, be slow to anger. So we need to be slow to anger. And why? Why does being slow to anger matter? Well, James spells it out for us. When you're quick to anger, you will not be producing righteousness in yourself, Verse 20 says, or, listen, or righteousness in others. Your anger, the anger of man, does not produce the righteousness of God. So both in yourself or in people around you, you are not creating righteousness. You are not setting or orchestrating situations in which righteousness is able to dwell. Your anger does not create righteousness. And so this is actually a salvific issue that we're talking about here, or at least a, a sanctifying issue that we're talking about here. James says, we want righteousness to be created, and your anger will not produce that, will not help others grow in their faith. It will not help you grow in your faith. Anger does not produce righteousness, okay? Your violent mouth, which James says in chapter three, is laced with the, with, with the venom of hell, he says. That, that tongue that you have with the poisons of hell on your lips does not produce righteousness when you're just throwing it around when you're just letting your mouth kind of run whatever way it wants to run. You need to be slow to speech. Take the time to understand. Why does someone think the way that they think? Why do they feel the way that they feel? Why is blank issue so important to them that they would get all caught up in it? Are you actually taking time to try to understand or are you just quick to shoot arrows into other people's hearts trying to wound them just so that you will feel right? Are you seeking God's righteousness or for you just to be right? There's a big difference between the two. And usually you're not right, you're right-ish, right? And so are you seeking God's righteousness or your right-ish feeling, right? And you have to ask yourself that. Now, listen, you don't wanna be a dry riverbed though because that doesn't nourish anyone, okay? So James doesn't say don't speak, okay? He doesn't say, hey, don't speak. That's not what he says. He says, be slow to speak, okay? Because sometimes God actually wants you to use your voice to nourish the people around you. He wants your voice to bring joy or to bring healing or to bring discipline, for you to bring truth into a situation where there's no truth or, or for you to bring laughter or peace. God wants to use your tongue. It is very powerful. What James is saying is be slow to use that, right? And so to use a very timely analogy, you don't wanna be a flood with your words, because as we see, even here in Austin, floods are destructive, and so is the tongue. The tongue is like a flood, and when it's untamed, when it's uncontrolled, it releases its damage, and many people are hurt. But you also don't want to be a dry riverbed, not nourishing anybody. You want to be a mixture of the two, so you need to have wisdom in the way that you use your tongue, James is saying. So be quick to listen, be slow to anger, be slow to speech. This takes wisdom. Okay, and James says, hey, this is an important issue. It's actually a salvific issue, right? Can I give you one practical example? Talk about this a little bit last week. On Facebook, don't have diarrhea of the mouth. 
okay? All right? It just produces nothing but hate and slander. And I've seen it, even from our own people, which is why I'm addressing that, right? Where you kind of post something and you're a little bit like, oh, I just, people need to know this, right? And then you post it and then boom, comments start coming and, and you feel this, this hatred begin to come up. You're not producing righteousness. And so be slow to your speech. Be wise in your speech. Realize that it's with the tongue that people actually get saved, because Romans 10, 17 says, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God because we have the word of God implanted into us, verse 21 says, we can actually release that for people to come to know Jesus. And when we use our tongues in other ways, we're being fools, all right? Be wise in your speech, be slow to speech, be quick to try to listen to other people. Do this humbly, okay? You wanna know what I do actually? What I actually do is I type out what I wanna say, Hint, what I want to say, okay? And I, I read it as if I'm reading it to my daughter, really. And then I usually click control A, which highlights everything, and delete. <laughs> because after I read it as if I'm reading it to Micaiah, I realize most of what I'm saying is just my own anger, my own frustration, my own opinion. There's not a whole lot of truth there. And so literally, I, I honestly do that every time that I want to respond to somebody. I type it all out first, and then I read it, and I think, like, well, would I want Micaiah to hear this? And 90% of the time, that thing is deleted right away, and I never send it, right? Be whatever it takes for you. You need to be slow to your speech because your tongue is a very, very important tool that God wants to use for righteousness, all right? Now, verse 21 says, therefore, okay? So in other words, what we just talked about, in light of being slow to anger or, or, or quick to listen, in light of this thought, he says, put away filthiness and rampant wickedness. This term is very similar to a term that Paul uses, which means to take off. So Paul often says, hey, take off the old man and put on the new man. James is kind of saying the same thing here. He says, hey, put away or Take off the filthiness that's over you. The, the, the term, the idea is you wearing really disgusting, kind of dirty clothing, right? So like you just ran the tough mutter, all right? He says, hey, take off those clothes, all right? And then put on something else. Now, the important thing is that both James and Paul always, whenever they tell us to take off, they also tell us to put on something else. So if we just take off sin, take off sin, take off sin, we end up naked, right? And until we're redeemed, Nakedness still is kind of shameful, all right? And so he says, hey, don't just take off, take off, but he says, hey, put on too. What does James tell us to put on? Well, what he tells us to put on is the gospel, actually. He says, hey, put on the gospel. How do we know it's the gospel? Well, look at verse 18. He says that uh, uh, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. All right, so he gives us the word of truth. Bob talked about this last week. Now here in verse 21, he says, receive the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. The only thing that's able to save your souls is the gospel, all right, but grace by faith, that's the only thing that is able to save us. And then at the end of this, James is gonna be talking about the word again. So this whole section is actually all kind of strung together. And James is talking about the same idea over and over again. We put on the gospel, because that is what's able to save our souls. James is telling us to receive the gospel humbly and then be changed by it, all right? You tracking with that? So you, you hear about who Jesus is, you, you realize who he is, you fall in love with him, and then you begin to put on him, right? You see him, you savor him, you, you taste him, you love him, and then you begin to be altered. Your, 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 your path begins to be shifted. You begin to look more like Jesus. You take off the old man, you put on the new man. 
That happens through the gospel. And James says, receive this humbly, right? And the gospel is found where? In this book that we're reading, right? The gospel is found in scripture, okay? And so that's what James is kind of talking about here. Now, let's keep going. Verse 22. But, pause, okay? So notice it starts with but. So we did just receive or believe in the gospel, but now something happened. So this is contrast to what James was just saying, right? So he says, hey, I want you to receive the gospel, but something else, okay? What does he say? Be doers of this word, the gospel, the thing that saves you. Be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forget what he looks like. This analogy has got to be for women, okay? Because I know some dudes who either A, don't own a mirror, or B, they forget what they look like when they walk away, all right? So if you're one of those guys, then realize the, the, the thought that James is trying to get out, okay? Some of y'all didn't laugh. You got offended by that. I was just kidding, all right? It's okay. Um, verse 25. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and, um, completely lost my point, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. Do you know that the average American male reads his Bible for less than one hour a year? The average American male, okay? Now we know, a lot of people say they're Christians. We know there's not a whole lot of Christian truth in here, but we're talking about all the males across uh, America who are of reading age. The average American male reads his Bible for less than an hour, (laughs) A year, okay, not a month, not a week, less than an hour and a whole year, friends. Less than an hour. Do you ever wonder why we have a culture that is more persuaded by friends on Facebook than what the word says? It's because we spend more time reading what friends on Facebook say than what God says. If we're only spending an hour, a couple hours, two, three, maybe even only an hour a week, but we spend nine, 10, 15 hours on other people's thoughts and opinions, who do you think you'll be persuaded by more? So James says, don't just be hearers of the words, but be doers also. But my fear is that we're not even hearers of the word. So James is assuming that these people are at least receiving the word right now. In that culture, they had church on a daily basis. They would get together all the time and they would talk about the word. And so James assumes that, hey, at least kind of on a daily basis, they're getting a little bit of the word. So James says, hey, don't just receive that, but then go do it. But I feel like we got to backtrack even from there. Because if this is true, if the average person, the average male reads their Bible for less than an hour a year, And we're not even hearers of the word, okay? And so I actually want to bring this into some present application for us because I know that this issue has come up. We need to kind of know where we are as a church and I want to highlight everything. So I want to talk about Scotus's decision with gay marriage, okay? And how I believe that this text right here actually guides us on how we should think and feel about that decision as a whole, all right? Look, everybody kind of looked up there. We're like controversy magnets in our culture. We're like, ooh, (laughs) right? Um, But I think this is uh, seriously extremely important. This text gives a lot of good insight into this, okay? 
So firstly, I bring up America's reading habits because if we don't read the word or hear the word, then how in the world are we supposed to respond with the way scripture tells us to respond? We don't even know what it says. So how are we going to respond when we don't even know what it says? And so we read what people think that scripture says, right? We, we, we read what our friends say, how, how we should be loving or how we should stand strong or how we should be in one way or another and we begin to act that out, but we don't actually take the time to seek out the God of the universe in his word. How are we going to know how to respond? We're not, okay? We're not. And so what does scripture actually say about marriage? You know, do we actually know that? Are we able to go to specific texts where it highlights what marriage is and what it isn't? And are we able to wrestle with that? Many of us don't know. Does scripture speak against homosexuality? Is that just in Old Testament? Did Jesus mention that? Is there a New Testament example? Are we talking about something different than what our culture deals with? People don't know how to respond because we're not even hearers of the word a lot of times. And so it's hard for us to respond appropriately. It's like me trying to talk engineer talk with y'all, right? Like just because I read a few tweets from some engineer friends and because a couple of my friends in here are engineers, that does not make me an engineer, right? Can y'all agree with that? Yes, you're awake, okay. Uh, It's like, uh, we'll reverse it. When many of my engineer friends talk sports, okay? It's like the Super Bowl, you know? The Super Bowl's coming and they're like, who's playing in the match tonight, (laughs) you know? My non-sports friends didn't even know why that was funny, right? Um, Many of us are Christians, but we have no Bible. We read a tweet from John Piper. You know, we go to church once a month. We do these little things, but we're actually not being covered in the Word. See, an engineer is covered in engineer talk because that's his field. If we are truly Christians and we believe that God wants to speak to us, this right here, this Word is our field. And if we're not in it, then how are we going to know how to actually live like Christians? How can we do the word when we're not even hearers of the word, okay? So scripture makes it very, very plain, okay, that marriage is a covenant between one man and one woman, all right? Scripture also makes it very clear that practicing, the practice of homosexuality is wrong, all right? Now, before you're quick to anger, if you are uh, if you feel offended at that statement, I would encourage you to look at the word. So that's why James says, hey, be slow to anger. Receive the word humbly. He says, sit under it for a second. Think about it. Because emotionally, our emotions can go all tied up in different things or in feelings or in thoughts. But he says, hey, no, think about, just think about it for a second. Receive this humbly, okay? And so quickly, by the way, I'm not talking about civil union all right, I'm not talking about state marriage or things like that, etc. cetera. Uh, I think that those are entirely different issues and they need to be discussed on a different day because they need to be discussed more in depth than just this, okay? I'm speaking about a biblical marriage, okay? One that God actually looks over and blesses. Scripture says that what God has brought together, let no man separate. So it's clear that God does bring together people in marriage. And so what I'm talking about is a Christian marriage, okay? Uh, a marriage that, that, that God ordains, that, that, that we can practice in the church. That's what I'm speaking of, a Christian marriage, if you will, okay? So when I say that a biblical marriage is between a man and a woman, because it's representing Christ in the church, and this is how God created it, if you don't know the word, then how would this make any sense? This wouldn't make any sense, right? Because we're not even hearers of the word. We don't, we don't know what that even means, what that looks like, And so what I've seen in the past few weeks is Christian after Christian kind of surrender to culture 
and they're persuaded away from the Bible as if all of a sudden in the last 15 years we've stumbled upon truth that we were missing the past 6,000. As if every theologian is far wiser than we are, right? As if every single Christian scholar, as if every single apostle and prophet, as if all of those were just kind of wrong a little bit. And all of a sudden we've stumbled upon this truth. I've seen us get persuaded away from culture. But if we don't know the word, then this makes sense. Because we're reading 15 times more our friends' opinions or, or, or somebody who doesn't even know the Lord, their opinions, than actually what the Lord says. So culture doesn't shape our understanding of marriage. Scripture shapes our understanding of marriage. And so if we think that God wants our best and we think that God knows how to run the world, you know, because he created it, right? Then we should actually try to come to him and say, hey, God, what are you doing within this? How do I respond with this? What does this look like? Why do you create marriage the way that you do? But like I said, I'm unfortunately not surprised because many people don't even know what scripture says about marriage in the first place. Bob said last week, and I agree with this tremendously, that Jesus had the ability to love someone even while profoundly disagreeing with them. And the crazy thing about Jesus' love is they never were ran away from Jesus, usually. They actually ran toward him. Only people that ran away from Jesus were the religiously uptight, right? But those who desire to know God, they were trying to seek God out. Jesus would disagree with their life and they would cling to him. You can have the ability to disagree and love tremendously. But if you don't know the word, how can you look like God in that moment? How can you be a Christian, a little Christ figure to people? And friends, scripture is still true, okay? Scripture is still true. This has not changed. This is what we sit under. We sit under the word of God. It's not my philosophy. It's not Bob's philosophy. It's not the elder's philosophy. This is what's guiding our life because we believe that God has spoken to us in this. And so if scripture is still true, we should not be happy about or celebrating sin. I hope not. I hope not. I hope that we're not excited if somebody is drawing away from God, right? But if our main idea, once again, comes from Netflix or Facebook scrolling, then this definition of marriage doesn't make a whole lot of sense, right? The reason that so many Christians are confused about this issue is because we've actually lost the very definition of marriage. We've surrendered to culture ourselves. And so here's what I mean by this. If marriage is supposed to bring happiness, okay? If marriage is supposed to be all about companionship, if marriage is supposed to be about emotional support, uh, if it's supposed to be about finding your soulmate or finding the one that completes you, then the world is exactly right about marriage because every marriage can have that component of it. You tracking with what I'm saying? Every single marriage can have happiness, emotional support. And so that's what, if that's what marriage is, then the world is right and we are wrong about this, okay? Because every marriage can find that. And so that's what we're trying to celebrate. And I understand that, right? Like that kind of makes sense to me. Yeah, yeah, I want people to be happy. I want them to have companionship. I want them to be whole, right? But scripture makes it very plain. That's not all that marriage is. Matter of fact, that's not what marriage is at all. And many marriages you can find these things. But scripture says that there's something far more significant happening in the confines of marriage. That marriage is a representation of Christ and the church. 
And so from Genesis chapter two, Paul says that God said, let a man leave a woman and and cling together, hold fast to his wife. This mystery is profound. I am saying it refers to Christ and the church. So from Genesis chapter two, God put together this thing called marriage to represent the gospel. Because in marriage and in the church and in our own individual lives and in everything that's happening, he wants all of these things to be arrows pointing to him. Because the greatest thing that we can have is a relationship with him. And so marriage is nothing more than a reflection of the gospel. So marriage isn't about us. It's about him. However, like we've been talking about, the oxymoron of the gospel is that once you do make it about him, once you surrender your life to his, then you do get all those things that you want. You get happiness. You get companionship. You get emotional support. You kind of get almost completed, if you will, right? The two become one, and, and they're made new, and there's this beautiful picture, but that happens after, not before. And if we are missing the point, right, then we're going to get confused about what marriage even is, And then we're going to be swayed one way or another with culture because we're not sitting under the word of God. And so we need to be hearers of the word, right? However, the text doesn't just tell us to be hearers, but it also tells us to be doers of the word. Do you know how freaking much Jesus loved people? Do you know how much he loved people? Okay, so here's the biblical definition. My other kind of beef within all this is the way that some Christians respond sometimes, man. I don't think they're hearing the word either because there's no way that Jesus loved people so much. If you're actually interacting with the God of this right here, your heart will explode with love for people. Not judgment. Unless you think that somehow you've gained salvation by yourself. (laughs) But when you know that you're a broken, messed up person and the only reason God saved you is for his tremendous love for you, that you were just as dark, that you were just as hopeless without Jesus, then you're able to spread that to many other people. Do you remember the woman that was tossed before Jesus because she was caught in adultery? You remember that story, right? John chapter eight. So she's thrown before Jesus, naked. It says she was caught in the act, right? And so she's naked and, and they're saying, hey, the law of Moses is to stone this woman. So what do you say, Jesus? He's writing in the ground. We don't really know what he's writing, you know. He says, hey, let he who is without sin cast the first stone. They kind of think about it. It says the older left first. They're like, I know I've sinned, <laughs> all right? And then the kind of the younger were like, yeah, I guess I'm a sinner too. And it got all the way down and nobody was left except for Jesus, the sinless man. And he looks at her and he, he bends down. And he says, where are your accusers? She said, I, there aren't any, Lord. <laughs> And then he picks up a stone and bashes her head in. Is that how the story goes? (laughs) No, not at all, right? But that's the way we respond sometimes to people, isn't it? Like we want to hold this truth and then we try to bash their head in with truth as if that's what will draw them to repentance. God's kindness leads men to repentance. Romans 2, 4 says, Jesus bent down and said, go and sin no more. Neither do I accuse you. Go and sin no more. Is what she was doing wrong? Jesus said, yeah, you're sinning right? But he was gracious. He loved her. He knelt down. He protected her. He covered her. Do you not think that God is doing that with every single person in this world? Because at any moment, the God of holiness could snatch all of us away because all of us fall short. But God is sustaining our breath. He's sustaining our life, right? He's gracious. He's quick to listen, 
He's slow to speak judgment. He's slow to anger. That's who God is. God does not get angry. He's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He could have wiped her out, but he loved her. And so Christian, hear the word, understand it, let this be authority, and then go do it. And then go do it. Go look like Jesus to people. Don't be harsh. Don't be aggressive. Don't be judgmental. You haven't received the word meekly the way James told you to in verse 21. If you're harsh, judgmental, you're not receiving it with meekness. You're receiving it with pride as if you've done something. No, all of us are broken, right? You forget how you yourself were saved if you're judgmental. You forget that God's kindness leads people to repentance. You forget that if someone doesn't know Jesus, then really nothing else matters, (laughs) Marriage or no marriage, right? This thing being legal or this thing not being legal, this person in this lifestyle or this lifestyle, it doesn't matter. If they don't know Jesus, man, that's what we're about is the gospel, right? And so while those things, yes, they are sin, and we can even stand under that and point that out, ultimately our only care is that they would come to know Jesus knowing that only Jesus changes the heart, not rules, not us. Unless somebody hears the Holy Spirit and we all know it. Jesus changes hearts, right? And so you don't have to celebrate sin. Jesus never did that. He never celebrated sin. You don't have to celebrate it. But you could be so gentle, so loving, so warm, so compassionate. You could be so full of God's great love for people. And most of this just has to do with you not trying to be right. With you being quick to hear and slow to speech and slow to anger. You can do that and look like a beautiful representation of Jesus. So see how this word applies to our very day situation, right? Like that's, that's what we were thinking about the past two weeks is, as our nation shifted, shifted into this direction, we go, man, what do we do? And I've seen all sorts of responses across the board. You can love recklessly, but still be under the word of God. Knowing that God desires life for us, okay? I literally had messages in my inbox email, Facebook, with my non-Christian friends asking me, hey, how do you feel about this opinion? Because they knew, they knew that I'm a Christian. They knew I was a pastor, right? Hey, how do you feel? How do you feel? And when I told them, I told them honestly, and I kind of laid it out, hey man, like I want people to be whole. I want people to be happy. I I understand that piece of it. I see why there's excitement. Here's what I think scripture kind of lays out about marriage. Here's why I feel like it's important. Not one of them were like, you bigot, (laughs) right? Nobody responded like that. Man, that that makes sense actually. I, I feel you. You know, maybe there was disagreement, but we're trying to listen to each other. Matter of fact, one of my very best friends, one of my groomsmen actually is gay. And I knew that before he was a groomsman. It wasn't like I found that out later. (laughs) You know, we had many conversations about that. Even me trying to hold him accountable within this relationship, which is kind of awkward, is is different than what we're used to. But I love that man, right? And we've had disagreement after disagreement after disagreement. He just broke up with uh, a relationship he's had with a guy for about two years now, and it, it, it crushed him. And I, I called him. I said, hey, man, I love you, bro. I love you, man. Know that Jesus is better than that dude. You can go to him, right? Now, it would have been easy to cast judgment. Hey, see, this is because God's not blessing that. As if many of my straight friends haven't broken up with girlfriends either, right? Like, it doesn't make any sense. No, no, no. What we want to do is show the gospel. We want to sit on the word. We want to be loving, but then point, right? And so we've disagreed, We've had hours of conversation of us disagreeing. I literally wept on the phone one day. I probably looked like a fool for everybody that was driving by because I'm like weeping, trying to tell him, man, no, man, Peter, no, life is over here, man. Don't, don't. And we're disagreeing back and forth. You can disagree tremendously 
and have a profound impact and have a ton of love for people, okay? And so this too, both sides, okay? So whatever side you're on, all right? Let me show you too why I know that God loves us so dang much because it's actually hidden even within this text, okay? Look at verse 25 again. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. Law of liberty, law of freedom. Seems like an oxymoron, right? Once again, the gospel is usually, okay? How can you have a law and have freedom? Easy, all right? This is what James is trying to show us. Some restrictions bring freedom. Some restrictions bring freedom, okay? We restrict a fish to water. Do you know why? Because that's where he is most free, okay? And so uh, if we say, you know, I feel like this fish deserves to be free, he shouldn't be confined to just this little pond over here or this ocean. He shouldn't be confined. And so we take the fish out and we throw him on Texas pavement. What happens? Somebody gets a really nice filet if they don't mind eating off the ground, right? The fish dies. Some restrictions bring freedom. Some restrictions bring life, okay? So when God tells us to do something or not to do something in scripture, he's not trying to kill us. Okay, he's not trying to restrict us. He's trying to bring us life. He knows what's best for us because he has orchestrated this whole thing. And so some rules, some restrictions, they bring freedom. And when we see the word, when we live it out, we begin to realize that. But we have to be hearers of the word first and then actually do it to be able to see the freedom that the word offers. Once again, God loves us. He's for us. He's not trying to make your life hell. He's trying to free you. He's trying to give you life. And listen, friends, this, this book right here is proof that God loves you. This is proof that God loves you. Do you know how hard it was to maintain this book, yet somehow in, in natural and in supernatural ways, God sustained the word of God for us so we have the very God-breathed words that we can know him. He didn't leave you wandering around, floundering around like a fish out of water, trying to feel your way toward God and who he is. He laid out the exact way that we're to come to know God, which is through Jesus. He did that through the word. Could we be hearers of it? Could we sit up under it that our Savior Jesus bled and died to know us and then we see this through the scriptures? God loves us. This is why you need to read this book like love letters, not like a newspaper, okay? This book is not just a book on morality, on do's and don'ts, on opinions. This is the God of love trying to extend his love towards you that you would come to know him. Do you remember what it was like to receive a love letter when you were back in school, right? Like, like somebody slipped it in your locker or a friend handed it to you because that person was too scared to hand it to them themselves, right? And they tried to give it to you. It's probably folded up like a cute little heart. You had to undo it, you know? Some of you are like, thanks, Tori. I never received a love letter. <laughs> Here you go. You have a letter from the God of the universe. Cherish this. In this is life. In this are things that God will point you to himself and let you see how beautiful he really is. God has given you a love letter. Read it. Cherish it. Hold on to it. Read it like 60 times like you did that love letter in high school. Right? Read it over and over again. Think about how do I respond to this? What does it look like to, to try to live this out? God has given it to us. 
And he's shown us the way for salvation, not just of our souls, but even as we walk in this Christian life, okay? Let me read these final two verses. We're actually not going to go over them at all. Okay, I'm just going to read them real quick. Verse 26. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father, is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So James actually highlights three things and he's actually going to mention them in greater depth later in the book. So we're not gonna cover it today. That's why I'm, I'm, not, I'm not cheating the word, all right? We're gonna cover it later. Okay, he talks about the tongue. Chapter three is all about the tongue, all right? He talks about orphans and widows. Next week even we'll cover that a little bit. All right, and so we're, we are going to cover these, but James just gives an example of how we could be doers of the word. And that's what we just talked about with the issues surrounding this, this country, with gay marriage. We could be doers of the word and hearers of the word. We could sit under the word and still love with reckless abandon, just like our Savior did. And so maybe you're not wrestling with that issue, okay? Maybe that's not an issue that you're kind of wrestling with. That's okay. Figure out some way to do the word and to hear the word. Still sit under it, Okay. Um, I love you guys so very much, okay? I love you. I earnestly want you to love and to know God. And he revealed himself in scripture. And let's be hearers and doers of the word. Let's pray. God, I don't feel like I covered 5% of what's here in this text. Pray that you would forgive me for that, Jesus. God, I pray that you would begin to change us, to change us. We need you, Christ. Let us love earnestly. Let us hear and actually do the word. God, I thank you for this book. I thank you for pointing us to you, Jesus. You are the word, John 1 said, Jesus. You are the very word of God. And I thank you for coming and for living this book out perfectly as our perfect example. Jesus, that we can know you. Would you help us to mimic you now, Jesus? Would you help us to live out as your ambassadors? Look like you to this world, that they would see love that they would hear truth, that they would see the beauty of the gospel being displayed in every area of our life, God. Our marriages, our, the places where we work, the, the way that we spend our money, the, the things that we think about, our, our relationships with friends, would they see the gospel in that day? They would know you, Jesus. Let us hold fast to the truth, yet at the same time love recklessly. God, I know that many of us are not cherishing you daily. Heck, I fail at times. I just checked the box so I could say I read the word rather than actually trying to meet you in it. God, would you help us to meet you? You're far more important than Facebook. Our ideas of marriage can't come from Netflix or some modern philosophy. God, you know what you're doing. You love us. You give us the law of liberty to set us free. Let's find freedom in you, Jesus. Praise in your precious name. Amen.